Uh, well, I just have to admit something. I look around, I'm amazed at how many people are here uh, for Canada Day weekend. You guys are amazing. Just evidence again, the church is growing and reaching new people. And so some of you, I wonder if you would be willing uh, to raise your hand if this is your very first Canada Day uh, Canada Day weekend with Moncton Wesleyan. Raise your hand up high. Look around the room. Look at all these. It's amazing. Oh, my goodness. We are so, so incredibly grateful you are here. And uh, it's kind of fun, too. Uh, doing the greeting in French this morning was kind of a milestone because I've been working uh, in trying to learn French over these last two years. This Sunday is actually our two-year anniversary since Tracy and I started here at Moncton Wesleyan. And uh, we are amazed that you're still smiling, haven't kicked us out. I mean, that in, in and of itself is a miracle. And uh, testimony to your amazing grace through the love of Jesus. And uh, next weekend, we have an opportunity to invite a brand new team member. You're not going to want to miss next Sunday when we welcome Bradford Rogers to our staff, who will be joining us next week with his wife, Ashley. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yes, yes. And they have a brand new baby coming this week. We were so glad that it wasn't born in the U-Haul truck yesterday uh, because uh, their baby is due any moment now. Can you imagine starting a new, uh, new job, moving to a new province, uh, all at the same time with your fourth child on the way? And uh, so they are amazing people. And that is a testimony to how called they feel to this next phase of life at Moncton Wesleyan, and we're really, really, really excited about that. So we'll see them next week. But for you, voici la question. Uh, Est-ce que vous êtes prêts? Are you ready for the question? Here it is. Are you ready to study God's Word today? Okay. Now, we are not going to be in just one passage of Scripture today because in this series we're looking at a lot of different passages of Scripture. So everything will be on the screen for you. But if you would like to get started, you could find John chapter 3 and we'll get there in just a minute. But in the late 1800s, there was a very common thing that happened in North American cities and even small towns where the government would build homes, residential homes, for people who were indebted, people who were uh, disabled, people who were facing mental challenges, uh, people who were uh, psychologically insane, and, and I mean, just all kinds of different issues. Uh, many times, some of those even physical challenges, like the blind, or the deaf would be put in these homes. And sometimes, as, as hard as the workers tried, sometimes they were horrible places to live. Well, in the late 1800s, in one of those homes just outside of, uh, of Boston, Massachusetts, with the, the hundreds of residents that lived there, there was one little girl who was there all by herself. And they called her Little Annie. Now, this is not from the movie. This is not Little Orphan Annie, even though she was an orphan. But she did not have such curly red hair. Or a dog. But what she did have is uh, a difficult situation. 
where all of her family had died or abandoned her. She had no one. She was alone and desolate. She could not read or write. She had never even had the opportunity to brush her own teeth. And there in that place, uh, one day word surrounded the community. Uh, Annie was 14 years old, and she heard that there was a guy who would be coming to tour the facility whose name was Frank Sanborn. Frank Sanborn was a representative from the Perkins School for the Blind in Boston. And as he made his arrangements to, to come and tour the facility, word got around and people began to tell Annie, you need to get his attention. You're going to die in this place. There's no hope for you. You need an education. And so she said it in her mind that when she saw Frank Sanborn, she was going to do something. And so as he toured this facility, when he came in, walking into the room where Annie was, she threw herself at him and said, please, sir, I want to go to school. Please let me go to school. And Frank Sanborn looked at this 14-year-old girl with no family, she was blind, with no education, no social skills, nothing, hopeless. But he decided to give her a chance. And so Annie showed up at the Perkins School for the Blind in Boston. And the other children didn't know what to think of her. They, they had never been exposed to such a case of, of someone who had come from such difficult circumstances so different from themselves. She couldn't read, she couldn't write, did not even know how to spell her own name. And then six years later, she graduated from that school as valedictorian top of her class. And her name was Anne Sullivan. Meanwhile, in Alabama, there was a seven-year-old girl whose situation was even worse. Even though she had a family that loved and cared for her, unlike the situation with Ann Sullivan, this little girl, not only was she blind, but she was also deaf. Imagine living in a world with no ability to see, no ability to hear, no ability to even communicate with the outside world. And Ann Sullivan's first job was to move from Boston to Alabama to become the teacher of this little girl whose name was Helen Keller. Helen Keller, if you do not know the story of her and her teacher, Ann Sullivan, I implore you to, uh, not right now, don't look it up yet, uh, but later today, uh, go online and look up the story of Helen Keller and how Ann Sullivan poured into her life, and how Helen Keller became a world changer. One of the most amazing stories. And if you fast forward 50 years later, Helen Keller was being honored at a special celebration by the Queen of England. 
as one of the most amazing women in history. And when the queen asked Helen Keller, to what do you owe your great success? How have you overcome these handicaps of being both blind and deaf? And Helen Keller responded, if it wasn't for Anne Sullivan, I would not be here today. Mark Twain, the great American author, said that Helen Keller is fellow to Caesar, Alexander, Napoleon, Homer, Shakespeare, and the rest of the immortals. She will be as famous a thousand years from now as she is today. This is not an overstatement when one considers the story of Helen Keller's achievements in spite of her almost insurmountable obstacles. An illness left her blind, deaf, and unable to communicate when she was a 19-month-old baby. In a sightless and soundless world, she lived until she was seven years old, until Anne Sullivan became her teacher, after which all of life was transformed for her. Speaking of her teacher, Helen Keller herself said, you have heard how through a little Word dropped from the fingers of another, a ray of light from another soul touched the darkness of my mind. And I found myself, found the world, found God. It is because my teacher learned about me and broke through the dark, silent imprisonment which held me that I am able to work for myself and for others. And folks, that is the chain from generation to generation. Helen Keller became a world influencer because of the investment of Anne Sullivan. And Anne Sullivan herself had been a 14-year-old girl with no hope, with no prospects, with no education, with no opportunity until Frank Sandburn saw her and saw potential and invested in her and gave her a chance. And each generation raising up the next. Folks, that is what we are about as a church. And what Jesus is looking for is old men and old women who he's not done with yet because they have a heart for raising up the next generation. And what God is looking for is young men and young women who look around and have a heart for raising up others. Because listen, we do not just come here to sing pretty songs and read old Bible stories. We come here because we believe in the power of the name of Jesus to transform lives when we give of ourselves to our community and invest in raising others up for his kingdom. In the Bible, the greatest leader of the Old Testament was King David. King David who was just a boy who the rest of his family ignored and thought he had no potential. But he was raised up to be the great king of Israel because of the investment of a prophet named Samuel, who God said, invest in David, elevate his potential. And the prophet Samuel continued to speak into David's life throughout. And when David would mess up, because he messed up, Samuel would come and speak truth to him and encourage him and correct him because he loved him and believed in him. One of the greatest leaders in the, in the New Testament, Saul. Saul was a violent killer from Tarsus. 
But he became the great apostle Paul, transformed by Jesus, in part because of the investment of a man named Barnabas, who loved in him. And, and believed in him and invested in him. John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, was invested in by that exact same guy, Barnabas, whose name literally means the encourager, Barnabas. And then the disciples, the disciples, this ragtag group of misfits <laughs> and mal-do-wells, and they became world changers because of Jesus who invested in them and took time for them. And so for the first part of this series in week one, we talked about what it means to, to invest in others, to raise up others. But today we're going to turn that around and look at ourselves. What does it take in order to become that kind of person? That kind of person who, like Ann Sullivan, raised up a world changer. And who, like Frank Sanborn, gave someone else a chance. We're going to call this, do you remember the new word we made up? We made up a brand new word. Never heard, never heard before in the English language. What was it? Oh, there we go. Let's put it on the screen. Everybody say it, say it together. A razor upper. We're going to be a razor-upper together. And there was no greater razor-upper than Jesus. And there's no greater story of Jesus raising someone up than the apostle Peter. Now, Simon Peter, we know a lot about him because in the Gospels, the four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John, those are the four books called the Gospels that tell the stories of the life of Jesus. And in the Gospels, other than Jesus himself, there was no person who is mentioned more than Simon Peter. Peter is mentioned more than Mary or James or John. And we know that before Jesus came along, Peter was just one of the boys hanging out down by the lake. He was a fisherman. He was a hard-working, hard-living, hard-headed, no-nonsense kind of guy. In fact, everybody called him Simon before Jesus came along. And Simon, one of the Greek meanings for that word is hard-nosed. Have you ever known anybody who is hard-nosed? I'm not sure exactly how that translates into French or if it does or not. That's kind of a weird English expression but somebody who was hard-nosed, kind of hard to get along with sometimes. Some of you are like, I know because I'm married to one. <laughs> but then Jesus came along. And Jesus, through spending time with Peter and Peter surrendering his life to Jesus, he began to change he began to grow, and at times he would mess up and cause problems, and Jesus would come along and correct him and call him out and get him headed back in the right course. And Peter became so much more than anyone else could ever think possible. And Simon the hard-nosed became Peter the apostle. And folks, that's what Jesus does. He takes hard-nosed, messed-up people like you and me, and he does something beautiful in our lives. And so in this series, we've looked at John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. 
John 3, 16, let's read it out loud together. Here we go, all out loud together. Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so Jesus says, I did not come to condemn you. I did not come just to make you feel bad about your sin. I came to save you from your sin, to help you get better. And so to be a razor-upper like Jesus, there are four things that we need in our lives. To be a razor-upper, first of all, we have to have, number one, a belief that every person is of great value. And listen, one of the things that we need to understand is that so much of what we focus on in this world is temporary and it will pass away. The things of this world, houses and cars and our jobs and, and uh, government and structures and entertainment and even the beauty of nature and riches and hobbies, all these things will pass away. But the souls of human beings will last forever. And that's why people are what really matter. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 5 and 8. Let's read this out loud together. Here we go. Romans 8, 5 and uh, verse 8 says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not just good people. This, this says that, that, you know, we might sacrifice a lot for a good person. But Jesus looks at us even with all of our sins and all of our hang-ups and all of our messes and our, our selfishness, even with the evil that you have done, no matter how bad you have been, and Jesus loved you so much that he died on the cross so that you can be forgiven and receive new life in Christ. And folks, that is why there is no one like Jesus God demonstrates his great love for us in this. While we were still sinners, in the midst of our mess, God looks and sees the value that each person has. Why? Because number two, a razor-upper has a desire to see people reach their potential. Now, where do we get this idea that every person has value and that every person has potential? Well, it's because Genesis tells us, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make mankind in our own image. Which, by the way, that's where we get the idea of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Godhead, three in one. Let us make mankind in our image, God said in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And verse 27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Every person was created in the image of God. Male and female. And I, I, I'm not saying this in a harsh way. Please hear the sensitivity of my heart. But where do we get the idea that gender is male and female and not just a diverse spectrum as society says today? Because in our maleness and femaleness, we see the reflection of the image of God. And when that is, no, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. I, I appreciate the sentiment. But I want you to hear, this is not said at a wagging fingers at the world. My heart breaks for the world. Because I know the more we can mar and confuse the image in which God's image is revealed to the world, that it's not just maleness and it's not just femaleness, but it's, it's God has created us together to reflect his image. Where, do, where, do, where does all of the, the mess in the world and all of the confusion and, and all of the agony in the world and all of the pain and all of the suffering and all of the natural disasters and everything else, where does all of this come from? Well, it's because of our sin. When Adam and Eve gave Satan power over this world, Romans 8 verse 20 says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. That even our bodies are groaning. Do you ever feel like that when you have to get up for work on Monday morning? You're feeling your creation groaning in agony. See, it's all part of the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God and sin brought destruction into this world and messed everything up. And so now, when you look at the people around you, all of their God-given potential has been covered over by sin and broken dreams and destruction and confusion and layer after layer of the lies of Satan. But you've got to realize that it's still there. All that potential is still there because every human was created in the image of God, kind of like a car without an engine. It still looks good on the outside, and you look at this car and that car, and sometimes from the outside, they look the same. But one has an engine, and the other does not. And Jesus is what gives us our engine to new life. The Bible in, in Greek calls it spiritual life, zoe, which is eternal life. And it only comes from God, from the love of Jesus Christ who died so that we can have new life life. And so a razor upper has, number one, a belief that every person is of great value. Number two, a desire to see people reach their potential. And number three, a confidence in God's power to transform lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. In other words, 
the way that we see people should be different from the way that the world sees people. It says we used to see people the same way as the world sees people, but now we see things differently. Why? Because though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The new creation has come. The old is gone. And the new is here. That is, hey, let, let me give you another chance. We'll do that one together. We're, we're going to celebrate that. I'll say it and you, and you can go, woohoo. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. That's our hope. That's our hope. It's our promise. And so that's the difference between us and the world. We talked about this a few weeks ago, how the world looks at people and says, oh, you can never change. Who you are is who you will always be. But see, the power of Jesus is about redemption and transformation, not just to settle for who you are right now, but to become the fullness of who God created you to be. And that's who we are as a church. We believe that with the power of God's spirit and with the truth of God's word and with surrender to Jesus and with the love of spiritual community and with the right attitude that people can be transformed to meet their God-given potential potential in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the business that we are in. Man, I didn't expect to come and say such good things on Canada Day weekend. Number four, a razor-upper has trust that God can use us all to do great things. See, many of you have no idea how important you are. You have no idea the influence you have. Every single person has influence over others. And sometimes you're being a good influence. And sometimes maybe you're being a bad influence. I don't know about you, but I think the world already has enough negative critical people to go around. We need some more positive people. I think we already have enough people in the world who tear others down. We need more who build people up in Christ Jesus. And so that's what God wants to do through you. Like Frank Sanborn, who raised up Ann Sullivan. And like Ann Sullivan, who raised up Helen Keller who then became an inspiration to the world. Imagine how much more Jesus can do through you. And so here's the question. Just for a few minutes here, let's review the idea of hats. Okay, do you remember that when you, when you really see somebody with potential, the way that you evaluate it many times is, are they wearing hats? And I didn't bring all my silly hats today. I know you're sad. But you can picture everybody's unique hat, right, that we talked about a few weeks ago. If you weren't here, you can watch that online. But what does hats stand for? Every person who really becomes a razor upper will have these four qualities. First of all, H stands for hopeful. H stands for, let's go ahead and put them on the screen, hopeful. You see, Some people are just natural-born pessimists. Tracy says that about home improvement projects. She says, Joel, you're a pessimist. And I say, no, I am an experience-based realist. I know my limitations. 
But see, a pessimism in and of itself can be an insult to Jesus. Because pessimism is a lack of belief that Jesus has the power to transform. Available. A is for available. See, it's not about how talented, how gifted, or how much ability you have. It's about your availability. Because if you make yourself available, God will develop your ability. But some of us, we're too busy in the way that we live our lives. And we're committed to everything else before Jesus. And our families are running here and there and everything. And Jesus really is down here somewhere in the priority list. God can't use you if you will not make yourself available to him. Teachable. Teachable. I love the story in Luke chapter 5, verse 4 and 5, where uh, Jesus says to Simon Peter, there's this great story in Luke. Let's go ahead and look at this. Uh, on the screen. There we go. Luke 5, verse 4 and 5. Jesus said, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've been working hard all night long and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, Jesus, I will let down the nets. Do you catch that? Peter says, Jesus, we've been working hard. We've already done that. We know it's not going to work. But Jesus, because you say so, I'll do it. Do you have a teachable spirit? Or do you resist input from others? Do you, do you get offended when people get you feedback? Or do you have a humility to learn? And then servant-hearted, servant-hearted. This is probably one of the most difficult questions of all. Do I have a servant heart like Jesus? Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 33, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, him, for many. Years ago, I heard the question asked, how do you know if you have a servant heart like Jesus? It's a good question. How do you know if you have a servant heart like Jesus? And I heard that it's a very, very simple answer, and I've used this question again and again in my life. How do I know if I have a servant heart like Jesus? Here's how. How do I respond when someone treats me like their servant? Do I get offended? Do I, do I think, oh, I'm not getting the recognition I deserve? Do, don't they know who I am? And God's spirit checks me and says, yeah, you, I know who you are. You're a servant, a servant of Jesus. And without a servant heart that puts others first, we can never truly see the people around us raised to the potential that God has given them. And so what we're going to do is give you a few quiet moments to ask yourself these questions. Just look at the screen and we'll have it 
And for those of you online, we'll put it right there on the screen here in just a minute in, in full effect for you to ask, have I allowed pessimism and a lack of faith to hinder what God can do in and through me? How about my priorities? Have I really made myself available to God? Or is Jesus low on my priority list? Teachable. Maybe somebody's been trying to teach you something and you've been resisting because pride is getting the best of you. And servant-hearted. Do you have a servant heart like Jesus? Let's meditate together upon these questions and ask God.